K-Cut, and this is the K-Cut, a movie podcast for movie lovers. James here. I'm a content creator. I produce and release music under the A-List Boutique Paul, and I'm one half of the Prefer Not to Say podcast. I'm Rachel. I also write for Film Fatale, and I love classic film, the golden age, and um, international cinema. I'm Andreas. I am the creator and one of the writers of over at F Films Fatale. I love international cinema, art house, a little bit of everything in between. I'm super stoked today because we're talking about some really prestigious stuff. So uh, I got inspired by the Palme d'Or and I wanted to really get into some no, of our... No, 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 no. That's not what I heard this episode's about. Okay. Well, I mean, there's no uh, there's no fooling anybody because uh, we live in 2022 by the time that this episode's released. We can see what the title of this is. Okay, we're we're doing another crappy movie episode. I'm sorry, guys. Um, I, I wanted to avoid it. Um, but at the same time, I feel like terrible cinema is just inescapable at times. So the reason why um, I guess I wanted to discuss this certain topic is uh, my girlfriend and I have kind of just been having a bit of an itch for like watching not very good films. And I'm not going to bring up which films we've watched in case that's something that uh, either of you have chosen as your examples down the road in this episode, but we've had a few in mind. So like one that I don't think anybody may have chosen is uh, perhaps the worst film to ever open up TIFF. It's called score a hockey musical. And I think it was just completely abhorrent and, uh, it makes the music. Inc- but Andreas, the hockey musical is the song of our people. Uh, yeah, I saw somebody online unironically calling it the Canadian answer to Les Miserables. I'm like, you've got to be out of your mind. Like, are you kidding me? Um, anyway, so that was one. Um, I got her to finally watch Saving Christmas by Kirk Cameron, which I feel like she's never had a bigger headache in her life. The list goes on. So. What I wanted to do, because when you think of both of these films, for instance, could a hockey musical actually be good? I feel like if you did it the right way, maybe if Bob Fosse did like a really heavy hitting look at like the pugnacious style of the sport. Yeah, I feel like there's something there. Whereas Saving Christmas by Kirk Cameron just seems like it would be awful through and through. Nothing could save it, pun intended. So I feel like... That, that's why I wanted to do this episode. So in the first half, we're going to look at bad films or even not great films. They don't have to be the worst ever. That could have actually been good if they had some minor or major changes, but they had some promise. Maybe the concept was good. Maybe it had a good cast. We'll get into it. In the second half of the episode, we're getting into films that would have just been awful no matter what happened, who was in it, who directed it. They were just complete abominations from the from the get-go so we're gonna start off with slightly positive territory and then just get really cynical so who wants to go first i'll go first okay so what film is bad or not good that you feel like could have been saved that's easy prometheus okay so i think this is a movie that had a lot of promise and just kind of plots when it finally was created So I don't think it could ever really approach the magic of Alien and Aliens because you only get that, like, in those specific circumstances. But I do think you could have gotten a serviceable sci-fi. There was so much talent. There was a huge budget. uh, Everything went into this, and they were exploring some cool concepts. I think the main problem was it was let down by its screenplay, and so the story didn't live up to what it was trying to do. I think an origin story for Alien is a great idea, but the characters kept making stupid decisions. And it was so unbelievable and so poorly written that these 
absolute genius characters would do things like approach an alien creature that was hissing at them and burying its teeth or taking their helmets off in a unfamiliar atmosphere or not running sideways. And so I think if they had tightened it, if they'd made it more believable, if they'd paid attention to the details instead of just the ideas, we could have had something cool out of it. And there is some of it that is good. The performances are really good. And there was something there. It's interesting because Prometheus, oh my goodness, Prometheus is 10 years old now. I just realized. Um, I Prometheus is, this. I know. Uh, Prometheus is interesting because on one hand, when I first saw it, I was also a little bit more, um, I guess, like typical intro cinephile type person. And I liked it quite a bit. Uh, as I've gotten older, there's a side to it that I really think has aged even within an hour after seeing the film aged really badly. And it's all the stuff that you picked up on, like the, the idiotic choices, the laziness when it comes to that sort of stuff. The other complaints that people have, I feel like has kind of aged really interestingly because uh, Damon Lindelof was one of the creative minds behind this film. And he's one of my favorite people ever because of the leftovers lost Watchmen, Just love it. And a lot of what he did when it came to the unanswered questions, like why cast Guy Pierce as a 100-year-old, um, they're all answered kind of in the universe of the, like, the disc itself, not necessarily the film. So, like, if you look at the special features and you see, like, a young mastermind behind everything played by, you know, the age-appropriate Guy Pierce. There's that side of it. There's like, you know, going to the website, all of the metaphysical stuff. And I think Prometheus is a failed yet noble experiment when it comes to how can you unlock a film outside of its filmic properties, kind of like what he was doing with Lost. But on the other hand, it's all the boneheaded stuff that really stymies everything else when it comes to justification. You need to believe in what you're seeing, and Prometheus just isn't believable to me. And, I mean, I don't mean that in terms of aliens aren't real. I just mean I don't think characters act that way. Yeah, because, like, if something, if a tire-like object, like it's shaped in a circular pattern, a flat circular pattern, like a tire, is rotating towards you, yeah, the, the, the most obvious thing you could do is step off to the side. Like, Indiana Jones did it with a much wider boulder. So, like, the fact that this wasn't feasible, like, it, it's kind of silly and it's kind of insulting, Yeah, to be honest. Have you seen Prometheus, James? I have. I thought it was okay. I think the problem is, like, <laughs> do it, it's, it's one of those things where you question, is there the necessity for the prequel? Mm-hmm. That's fair. I mean, the necessity, yeah. Well, also, I mean, we've got that uh, prequel to Predator that's going to be coming out, Prey. <laughs> okay. And I'm just like, uh, cool. no, we don't need to. It's just beating a dead horse. We don't, we don't need to constantly expand on things that, you know, already got kind of ruined. Like, Alien got kind of ruined along the way. Oh, yeah. I mean, you got Alien and Aliens and the Alien 3, but that wasn't even David Fincher's fault. That was the studio. And then 4 was just like, why are you continuing this? Apparently that, uh, was it that other one that came out recently? The other sequel? Oh, I forgot what it was called. A, there was another Prometheus, wasn't there? Yeah. Yeah, it was Alien Covenant. Yeah, it's just, I don't know. I, and then, yeah, I, I guess it's one of those things. It's like, did it really have to be made? But then all the stuff that you guys mentioned, it's like, yeah, some of that stuff is like, it doesn't hit you at first. But when you think about it, you're like, yeah, this doesn't work. 
I mean, look, I agree with you. I think it's actually like a fine film. It could have actually been something a little bit more special had it not done so many stupid things, as we've already discussed. Um, and I don't mean to lose listeners or do hot takes, but something like this is kind of where I go to when I say Ridley Scott is an okay filmmaker that happened to make two masterpieces, those being Alien and Blade Runner. Um, I've seen enough stuff like this where it's like questionable decisions like House of Gucci, Robin Hood. Again, this, which is a better example of like a better film, but still stupid decisions. And it's like, that's kind of more what I see from Ridley Scott, like somebody with capabilities that just does a lot of things that just shouldn't have been done. Really. I call him a capable director. Not yeah, a, capable's good. Uh, not say the level of the, your wall of directors on Films Fatale, but you, you, you can count on him to turn out products. I appreciate the plug, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Any more comments about Prometheus, a 10-year-old, shockingly 10-year-old Prometheus? No. Can't think of anything. Okay. Uh, James, you want to go next? Sure. So I was kind of thinking I wanted to, like, my original pick was going to be Avatar, but I feel like it's too easy to beat up on Avatar. Which Avatar? Are we talking Last Airbender or Blue Pocahontas? Oh, no. Dances with Smurfs. I never I never saw The Last Airbender. I avoided it because I already knew it was going to be bad. Uh, so I decided to go with the more recent one. I'm going to go with the United States versus Billie Holiday. Oh, yeah. Oh. We all watched that one. The biggest gripe was it was made like a TV movie. And I mean that in a bad way. It, it was just like, overall, it was like, it was a film. I wanted to like it, but it was just giving me so many reasons not to. And it, it had fine performances, but the, you know, the screenplay was so-so. Some of the directing choices, uh, the editing and cinematography was just basic. They even did some stuff like, what was it? Um, I don't remember this correctly. Didn't they have some sort of like like a film grain effect that they do every once in a while that looked really bad. Or am I thinking of something? No, there was something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There was they something like that. Just vintage, it, basically. Yeah. There was, and it was only in certain spots and it was just, yeah, it was, it was just such a missed opportunity because it's like, that was a great story to tackle. It was just done the wrong way. And it's still worth watching for Andre day. Like she's wonderful. Oh, she was great in it. And that's what kind of disappoints me even more because it's like you have performances that are really good. It's just everything else that kind of takes away from it. But that's what happens when you got the, you know, the streaming service originals. Yeah. I feel like uh, the point that you're getting at and uh, tell me if I'm wrong, uh, but I feel like we might be in agreement here. Um, Going artistic and doing some, you know, experimental choices is all well and good, but have a more focused film first, make sure that you've ticked off all of the boxes that you've got something steady I feel like even in this case, while it's not preferable, by the numbers might have actually been the better way to go. It's still a mediocre result, but at least it's not baffling. Have something that's coherent, I feel like. Yeah. Or on the other hand, go full experimental and don't kind of sit in the middle like this one did. Actually, yeah, that's a very good point. Either go the full the full distance or stay at home base. There's nothing wrong with loving, you know, the food made at home, but if you want to explore go the distance or go to the like as far as you can. Don't like have one foot in comfort and one foot in daring because that never works. Yeah. And I think it, see one night in Miami succeeded in what I think that this movie wanted to do a little bit like a, a, like a different take on something we've already kind of heard or read about. Yeah. But it's like it, 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 it was consistent. Mm -hmm. True. 
it knew what it wanted to do and stuck with it. It wasn't like, okay, you got all these, you got like three different ideas that just don't kind of don't work, but I'm going to kind of make them work. I totally agree. And that was also a movie that could have gone badly really easily because it was a film play. So it really could have become boring and they kept up the energy. Uh, yeah. Regina King is a fantastic filmmaker and I would love to see her do more, but that's, that's a testament to her as a director. Absolutely. Like basically let's take this unique idea from the stage onto the big screen but actually make it work because it translates. The United States versus Billie Holiday almost feels like you took a sentence, put it in a translator, put in a translator again, brought it back to English, and it's just muddled. Like, you get what the big picture is, but it's just inconsistent and not fluid whatsoever. Yeah, it also, because like One Night in Miami, it's like, I think Regina King understood that's supposed to be a performance-based movie and not anything else. Mm-hmm which is what the Billie Holiday movie should have been. It should have been primarily performance-based, but they tried to be a little bit flashier, and it just it just didn't work. Yeah. It's like flashy just for the sake of it without necessarily understanding repercussions or intentions, motives, all that stuff. And speaking of something of that nature, I have um, a similarly long-titled film. I don't know if either of you have seen it, so I apologies in advance. But the one film I think of often when I get a question like this is the death and life of John F. Donovan by Xavier Dolan, uh, Canada's very own. And I know of it. I've never seen it. I have yet to see any of his movies. Basically the issue with this film is it was his foray into the English language. Uh, when it comes to making films, by the way, like the guy's completely fluent in multiple languages. Um, so he was going to get this big cast uh, you know, he got Jacob Tremblay off the off the tail end of of Room. So he, you know, here's this fantastic child actor, Kit Harrington when Game of Thrones was still relevant, uh, Natalie Portman, Jessica Chastain, um, Thandoway Newton. Like a lot of big names are in this thing, and the premise is just brilliant. The premise is um, about this young boy played by Jacob Tremblay. It takes place in two different timelines. He loves this celebrity named John F. Donovan. And if I get some of the details wrong, I apologize. I watched it once. I don't really intend on watching it again. And I watched it at TIFF. So this was years ago. Um, He loves this celebrity. And the celebrity is kind of outed as being homosexual. And the child actually is starting to realize that he himself is homosexual. And they form like a bit of a bond. Like, nothing perverted or anything, like like just a bond, like a confiding, uh, like a, a confinement in, in each other. Uh, to kind of place some context, this takes place in the 90s, I think. So when something like being gay was still seen as taboo and like a career killer. And you also cut to the present when that child is now an adult and basically conveying what it was like to be friends with a formerly big actor who's now passed away and he's... I think writing a memorial for him, I think, or like the interview was supposed to like kind of contextualize like a, like a fallen actor. I don't quite remember the details, but Xavier Dolan edited and re-edited and re-edited and re-edited the hell out of this thing to the point that it's overproduced on the nose and kind of insufferable. So case in point, Jessica Chastain, who was on a poster for this film when they were first promoting it, Completely cut out of the film. So there's that. Um, yeah, Xavier Dolan has an interesting taste in music, but sometimes he's too on the nose. So like when you end your film with uh, Bittersweet Symphony, 
like I'm sorry, but this was made in like in like the 2010s, the later end of the 2010s, and you're using Bittersweet Symphony to close out a film. Like uh, yeah. you're you're kind of 20 years too late. And stand, it's pretty hackneyed. Yeah, like using "Stand by Me" in the scene when the son and mom are like running in the rain to try and find each other. You like, mean like every rom com ever? Well, exactly. Like you know, there's so many on the nose song choices, hammy dialogue. Um, overproduced everything. A lot of the characters just aren't likable. I feel like some of the acting falls flat. I don't mean to uh, single out anybody, but Kit Harrington in particular, I feel like was kind of misdirected. Um, this is a great concept and something that we just don't ever see, like this side of the uh, the like the celebrity lifestyle and the effect and influence that a big person could have on a young child, particularly in a community that's been often maligned, especially, you know, and especially yesteryear. Um, but it was just completely mishandled and it's unfortunate because there's so much promise there, but it just ends up being kind of an annoying film, quite frankly. Like it's one that, again, I just kind of don't wish to see again. That's a bummer. Wow. I know. You know, it's interesting. This film, um, because I've only I've only really like heard and read about Xavier Dolan, but it's interesting when this film came out. Uh, I remember seeing the consensus was because he up until this point he'd been lauded as one of like you know the great auteurs of our generation. This movie kind of got people questioning that, like, okay, hold on, you did all this great stuff leading up to it, and then this just falls flat. What happened? That's exactly what happened, and. Um... Before any listeners get disgruntled, and if Xavier Dolan, if you're listening, I apologize. Um, I will shout out Mommy. Mommy is a brilliant Canadian film by Xavier Dolan, and that uses a lot of like experimentation and simple storytelling much more effectively. So uh, don't watch John F. Donovan. Do watch Mommy. That's all I will say. <laughs> now, I think we've given some flowers to some films that we had a little bit of a higher expectation for because we felt like they had promise. Let's get into some films that we knew would just be awful because like there's no hope. There's no hope for them. So shall we, shall we go in order again? Like the same order as last time? Sure. So um, way back in the early 2000s, a little show called American Idol happened. God help us all. <laughs> and, after the inaugural season, there was a winner and a runner-up, Kelly Clarkson and Justin Guarini. And on a cheap attempt to capitalize on this success of approximately 15 minutes, well, I mean, Kelly had a longer career, but anyway, they put them in a piece of cinematic direct called From Justin to Kelly. I saw it when it came out. Uh, it's basically got no plot except for them running around an island, like, falling in love with each other and stuff like that. And yeah, this movie cannot be rescued. It's funny that this is the one that you chose for the second half of this episode, because this bad movie spree that my girlfriend and I have had started with this awful movie. Now I saw it like you when it first came out, I think as we were all young and we were curious. So I've seen it twice now. <laughs> Oh. Why would you do that to yourself? Oh, God, I needed to. I haven't seen it once. I needed to remember how bad it is. Okay, so consider one of my viewings yours, James. That way you're spared. <laughs> um, it's abhorrent. It's really – so it's not even just running around an island. It's uh, spring break. Oh, and it's spring break, right. 
Yeah, like all the guys are womanizers, despite what they might tell you. And mm-hmm. uh, all the girls are treated as like just completely aimless. Every character is idiotic. I just have to say it. Every character is idiotic. The music is awful. The um, choreography is awful. The dialogue verges upon really, really creepy at times. And it's so, so weird because, Rachel, there's one part that I want to bring up before we continue crapping on this. Do you remember that big climactic song that Kelly Clarkson gets that's actually really good towards the end of the film? Yes. How did that get in there? Like, how did they actually make a right choice? I don't know. I guess I guess even a broken clock is right twice a day. I guess. But, like, I was like, wow, there's something in this film I actually like. The trouble with this is it wasn't meant to be a movie. It was meant to be a 90-minute commercial for Justin and Kelly's new careers. And, you know, there are some very talented alumni of American Idol. Jennifer Hudson won an Oscar. Several people have been on Broadway. But this, like, there were no characters. The... uh Leads were not talented enough to make characters out of what was written, not that anyone could. And so it was just so vacuous that there's no rescuing this thing. You just have to start entirely over with something else, and then it wouldn't even be the same movie anymore. So I view the first half as needing some tweaks, and then the second half, it's just like, yeah, rip it all up, start over. Yeah, like, don't even, like, just don't even continue. I do have to question the gestation of this because, uh, uh, just hear me out. So, yeah, Jessica Guarini came in second. Kelly Clarkson came in first. Was this something that they had written before the show, like while the show was running? Because otherwise, what would they have done if, uh, I don't know, like, uh, would, like would this particular film have worked with whatever pairing that they might have, like, had? Uh, what, back then, would they have embraced, like, an LGBTQ plus film? Because this Definitely film certainly... Not. Yeah, this film certainly does not expose that like at all it was the same era as like crossroads so they could have had two people being buddies they could have made it into a buddy comedy with two guys uh i'm I'm only going by what would have been sort of mainstream in the early 2000s and then they could have had a sort of girl power trip with girls and then they could have just swapped out the names it would not have been hard to turn all around but they made it absolutely yeah so then there's that side of it could have been from that early or could they have like seen who the two finalists were and said hey let's quickly write this godforsaken movie because it looks like it was written in about five minutes i mean i feel like i could write something better than that in a day i feel like if i got really sick from food poisoning i could churn out something better i'm sorry not to get tmi but it's true (laughs) like it's just an awful awful substandard movie it would be one of the worst ever made like sincerely if it wasn't for that one song which damn it you know it saves her for being an f it's like an e minus because of that one song that's it i almost incorporated it into our bad movies episode but i really wanted to see the hottie and the naughty so i did that (laughs) which i could only gather is worse Mm -hmm. um (laughs) fantastic so uh James, what about you? What film is just beyond saving? So the film I chose for this, it's one of those ones, because I was thinking, I was like, what's bad that didn't really, couldn't really be saved? I decided to go the angle. It's the circumstances. Like the only way for it to even be remotely tolerable is if the circumstances it was made were completely different. I decided to go with Armageddon. Ooh, okay. So... 
I will never fault Michael Bay or anybody involved in Armageddon for being what it was, except for the people at the top, because this film was made in reaction to Deep Impact. Right. Right. So, and uh, they had to do the entire film in 16 weeks. I didn't know that. That is very compact. And I think they even went as far as, like, like, to the final edit 16 weeks. Wow. Yeah, they're, they're, that film didn't really have a chance. I mean, obviously it has its fan base and was really successful. But, I mean, the screenplay alone was just ridiculous. It's easier to teach a group of oil drillers to be astronauts and not the other way around. <laughs> What's funny is, have you, heard the ben, have you heard the Ben Affleck story about that? I think it's urban myth, but still. I heard, I think, uh, I think supposedly in the director, in the commentary, he brings that up. I haven't heard it myself. Apparently, uh, he asked Michael Bay, like, wouldn't it be easier to teach rocket scientists how to drill? And apparently, Michael Bay, excuse my language, told him to shut the fuck up. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, apparently, well, because reading further into it, it was written by, I think, the producers. When when this is being made, they drafted nine writers to come up with a screenplay, which only, like, I think five of them were credited. Yeah, they got an entire team to crank out the screenplay. And I'm just like, what? Why all the all this just to compete with another movie of a similar premise? Like it's just so bizarre. So it's like, yeah, it's like it didn't have a chance. Also, there's a love scene with Liv Tyler and Ben Affleck that has an Aerosmith song playing, which is her dad. It's happening, <laughs> and I just yeah, I just find that really weird. Also, they had like no chemistry. No. <laughs> oh, they really didn't. It was yeah, it was not great. But yeah, it was just one of those t- things where it's like. It, it should it should have just never happened, really. <laughs> like it, you you come up with a film that needs to be done just to compete, like really fast. That's never the way to do it. But it was successful, and somehow it was released by a Criterion Collection. Everyone knows that all asteroid movies must end with Kirsten Dunst looking sad. This is the law, and yet only one does it. <laughs> so technically, that makes it good. I don't know. <laughs> According to that rule of thumb, well. Um, if that's, if that's the end of Armageddon, uh, pun intended again, um, I, for this one film comes to mind for my selection. Um, and I really hope neither of you have seen this because I think this is the one film that makes me the angriest out of any film I've ever seen. Like, I just feel like I'm Yosemite Sam about to like explode with steam coming out of my ears at the end of this film. It just is, it's not necessarily the worst made. It's just, it's just the most vile, like one of the most vile films I've ever seen. And case in point, as soon as you know what the premise is, as soon as you know what the title is, you're like, why does this exist? It's a garbage pail kids movie. So oh, yeah. <laughs> please tell me neither of you have seen it. I've seen the nostalgic critic uh, rip off or rip on it. So, so for context, um, Cabbage Patch Kids were a big hit in the 80s, and there was an answer, like a satirical answer, if you want to call it that, called the book Garbage, called the Garbage Bale Kids, where they're like these little trading cards, but instead of cute little kids, it's like one that vomits, one that uh, has snot all over their face. Like, it's just gross. It's just like stupid, gross stuff. That sounds awful. Yeah, so, uh, Rachel, you brought up the Nostalgia Critic. So, uh, Doug Walker and the Nostalgia Critic, I, unfortunately, and I feel I do feel bad about this, but I try to be as um, upfront and truthful with my reviews as possible. 
I have uh, ripped him apart a little bit on Phil Spital, but I do want to say that growing up as like a young teen, um, I actually did like a lot of his earlier stuff. And that is actually how I discovered this film. Um, once somebody who is a critic or a, you know, even like a, like a satirical critic, like he is, um, once they proclaim something as the worst thing they've ever seen, you kind of take note. And, and he's seen a his, lot of bad things. Oh, he has. Well, that's, that's kind of his, his gimmick. You know, he's known as the guy who used to watch all the bad nostalgic films until he left and he came back. And now it's just bad movies in general, I think. Um, so I used to take his opinion very seriously when I was younger. And even though I basically got a high, a low light reel watching his review, I was like, okay, I've got to watch this thing for myself. And yeah, there's like very little plot. There's like some kid who likes an older girl in high school who gets bullied who uh, I think helps out in an antique shop and suddenly the garbage pail kids who come from space. I don't know why. Um, it's always space, the- Andreas. It's always space. <laughs> it's always space. If there's no answer, it's fantasy or sci-fi. Um, they crash land and they live in this antique shop. So now he's like taking care of them, but they're all like a bunch of idiotic juveniles. Um, so like, yeah, again, somebody who like sneezes a lot, somebody who pees a lot. I think he like pees his pants like five times in the movie. Like we get it. You, you wet yourself. Why is this necessary? Um, a lot of really bad stereotyping as well. So it's just ugly to start off. There's vomiting. Luckily not as much vomiting as there is peeing, but there's enough. There's a lot of farting. Um, so it's already like not my cup of tea. Cause I don't like juvenile stuff, but then it gets really vile once it starts getting into the notion that, In this universe, and this is real if you haven't watched this, if you're considered unattractive, so not even just ugly, if you're considered unattractive, you get sent to a place called the state home for the ugly. And if you're there for too long, because you haven't like been claimed attractive, whatever, you actually get executed. You get killed for being ugly in this film. And in this stay home for the ugly, I'm pretty sure there was like Gandhi, I think was in it or something or oh like, God. like a mall Santa was there's like some really like big names where it's like, are you kidding me? Like what the, if it wasn't Gandhi, it was some other like really big name that was just very insulting. And, um, you know, you want to feel bad for these kids, but you don't cause they go around doing stupid stuff and breaking into shops and being obnoxious and rude. And you don't care about the human storyline either. It's just a pain in the ass and just so obnoxious to watch. It really is one of the most detestable films I've ever seen. Well, I'm sorry it exists. <laughs> it exists because these cards were selling and I thought, why not turn it into a film? If your cards are hideous and the basic purpose is you open up a deck and you're like, Ugh, I got the one who poops his pants and you toss the cards off to the side. Why do you think an hour and a half movie is going to be any better? Exactly. I can see why they were reacting to the Cabbage Patch Kids, but I think that joke is funny for approximately two seconds and then it's over. Yeah, it's like if you're in high school and you doodle like, I don't know, we grew up on Rugrats, so you could be like... Evil Rugrats or something. Oh yeah, like instead of uh, Tommy Pickles, more like Tommy Stinkles and you like give him stink lines or something. Yeah, it's like funny for like two seconds. Like the fact that you tried to build something off of a very poor marketing whatever, like it's just stupid. It's just awful. Like there's zero way this could have been good. 
you could bring in Meryl Streep and it arguably be worse. Before we head out for the evening, check us out on social media under uh, The K-Cut on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you're following along with Cinematic Smorgasbord, you can watch The Color of Pomegranates, The Graduate, Freddy Got Fingered, or our collective Shaolin Soccer. Fantastic. And uh, you never know, Freddy Got Fingered might wind up in an episode like this. I guess we'll find out what we think. Um, Cool. So, uh, James, please recommend us a better film than the six we've just talked about. Oh, you know what? I'm going to suggest a movie that's ridiculous. Uh, Team America, World Police by, you know, good old Trey Parker and Matt Stone. Amazing. Okay. Uh, Rachel, what about you? Uh, We just got Team America, World Police. Do you have something similar that's like better than the other six movies we've just discussed? Hmm. I think I am going to recommend um, the Peter Jackson movie Heavenly Creatures from 1994. It was very early Weta films, and it was the debut of both Kate Winslet and Melanie Linsky. It's about a real-life murder case, and it's got a Peter Jackson spin on it. It is a really fine film. Fantastic. And um, I'm not going to lie, I'm in Palm Door season, so I'm like reflecting a lot of the, my favorite films that I've already seen or you know, some of the stuff that I'm like discovering, but one of my favorite winners is uh, Louis Buniel's Viridiana, which I feel like if you like Buniel, he's got like the surreal side, the hyper-realistic side where it's like, you know, the social commentary. And then he's got like a little bit of a blend of the both. And I feel like Viridiana is like one of his finest examples of blending both worlds, especially uh, because it's, you know, it's one of his 60s entries and I adore that film. I can't wait to gush about it when I write about it. But yeah, those are three much better films than the other ones you've already listened to. So don't watch those. Watch these ones. Watch these ones instead. That was the K-Cut. Uh, we are not going into the L-Cut. 